You've Met with a Terrible Fate, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simond, a game study scholar from Germany. I'm Aaron Saduko, the founder of With a Terrible Fate. I'm Dan Hughes, an analyst on the site. And you can find us every Sunday on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and wherever you like to listen. And we've got ourselves into some kind of Kingdom Hearts special today, or some <laughs> Kingdom Hearts week even, right? That's right. It's, uh, to, to quote myself at one of our conventions, lock the doors, you're all trapped. We're talking about Kingdom Hearts for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> it's too late now. Yeah, my memories are a bit faint of Kingdom Hearts. It's been so long since I've played it, but I most vividly remember the music of it. I remember such wonderful pieces like Dearly Beloved and of course this uh, in the ending of the first Kingdom Hearts game. Don't worry, dear listeners, we'll get into what Kingdom Hearts is exactly in a moment. But in the ending sequence, there's this wonderful piece playing by uh, Utada Hikaru, mm. Simple and Clean. Simple and Clean. A wonderful, yep. wonderful song. Maybe we can link the, uh, the acoustic version of that song in the show notes. It is so beautiful. I would love that. I think um, I will get into an article that I've written later, but uh, I, could, I could honestly write nothing but articles about the music of Kingdom Hearts for the rest of my life and probably <laughs> still have things to say about it. It's funny. Uh, I I don't know if you guys have games like this. It's a little similar to what I talked about uh, in terms of how I discovered Nier a couple weeks ago. But I grew up with my first console being the GameCube. And I think the last console I ended up getting was a PlayStation, which at that time, the current gen was a PlayStation 2, I think. But so I had this experience as Kingdom Hearts games were starting to come out of this kind of amazing story to which I didn't have access. And I remember vividly as a kid, there was a time when I actually dreamed about being able to play the story. I literally had a dream and I didn't even know much about the story. Just there were these amazing characters that I was finally able to pick up a video game console and engage with. And so it was literally a dream come true. And I was able to finally play this wild, amazing series that for so many gamers like us has now been with us for like, what is it, two decades at this point? Can we say that right? 20 years. 20 years. Yep. Amazing. It has this magical pull almost, uh, not unlike an actual Disney film, because I do remember that I played, I don't know, I think it was, was it the first or the second game in which you can perform Under the Sea with the Little Mermaid? That's the second one. Yeah. With That's the, the second one. Yep. And I think that, my sister back then, my younger sister came into the room just as I was playing that Under the Sea um, musical sequence, which is really just a quick time event. <laughs> and uh, she came in and, and it was like, wow, that is amazing. <laughs> what, what are you playing there? And she totally got into Kingdom Hearts and she played the second game in one day, I think. Wow. Just from beginning to the credits without without taking any, any major <laughs> breaks. I had a similar experience. I think I... Uh I, I've told this story many times before, but uh, shout out to my mother who called me off of school when Kingdom Hearts 2 came out, bought the game for me and <laughs> let me stay home and play it. So, <laughs> very formative event. As you know, dear listeners, at With a Terrible Fate, we strive to give everyone, that's where the emphasis lies, 
the tools to understand and appreciate video games as a form of storytelling. And that is why this show is free and independent. You won't run into a paywall and you won't hear any advertisements because instead we do rely entirely on your support out there. And if you do wish to contribute, if you do wish to help us get the show off the ground, then you can go to patreon.com slash with a terrible fate to find out more. Now, we already mentioned that we have sort of a Kingdom Hearts special today. And Kingdom Hearts, for all of those out there who may not have heard of the series, it is basically a cooperation between Square Enix on the one hand and Disney on the other, combining the worlds originally of Final Fantasy characters and Disney characters, right? Making these Disney worlds explorable. And we have a guest here on the show. I'm very glad to have her on, Antu Nguyen. She's currently working on her master's degree in media, culture and theater at the University of Cologne. She was just until this year employed as a research assistant in the project Open World Structures, Architecture, City and Landscape in Video Games by Dr. Mark Bonner. And she's now here to tell us about Kingdom Hearts and its connection to the experience of a Disneyland theme park design. Hi, Antu. I'm glad to have you on. Hello, hello. I played, I think, the first two Kingdom Hearts games when I was a mm. teenager. And mm -hmm. now the third game came out when I'm... Uh, middle-aged I dare say yeah. <laughs> university <laughs> lecturer uh, and I'm wondering like for those those few that may not have heard of Kingdom Hearts or may have heard of it but could never really puzzle it together how would you describe like the premise of Kingdom Hearts as a series um that's that's a good question already because I, I feel like every uh every person has a different access to to Kingdom Hearts um I think most people will have heard of Kingdom Hearts because they think, oh, it's a video game with Disney characters, right? I think that's what most people think. But my access to the game was actually, oh, it's a video game with Final Fantasy characters. So I was less interested in the Disney people and the characters and the worlds. I want, but personally, I wanted to see the Final Fantasy characters. Um, and uh, that's this is we already drifting off to like what like entrance points to franchises. But um, Kingdom Hearts really is built on a premise of two big media companies collaborating together to create this product that features all of their worlds that they are known for. And uh, depending on who you like and um, what you're familiar with, that's how you get into the video game, I think. I had a very similar, speaking of entry points, I was on the Final Fantasy side as well. Yeah. <laughs> I had just come off Final Fantasy yeah. 10 and I said, I want more of this, please. Were you disappointed when Kingdom Hearts 3 did not have any Final Fantasy characters at all, really? I wasn't because I think by that point I was so focused on one thing that I, I find funny that you didn't mention that because I think sort of the joke of Kingdom Hearts is that um, people know it as being either the Disney Final Fantasy collaboration or that really complicated weird thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think by the time three had come out, unlike Stefan, I was I was sort of following it since its inception and to its, you know, temporary conclusion. And I was more invested in all the black coats and, you know, what was going on with all the yes. all the heart transfers and all that good stuff. So but I do understand why people were disappointed for sure. Whoa, whoa, I've already lost track of what's going on in this, in this conversation. <laughs> so this is, Kingdom Hearts is infamous for being so 
so exceptionally complicated in 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 its narrative and in its lore mm-hmm. that I'm wondering how these two things go together. On the one hand, you have something as accessible and mass appealing as Disney, and on the other hand, you have these extremely complicated, overarching storylines. Mm-hmm. How does that synergize? This is um, one of the main points that I try to start from in my MA thesis. I'm basically saying this is too complicated, and this, it's not my task to really go like my my this my 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 thesis is not going to be sixty pages long of trying to explain the story to you because I don't think that's going to be of any value to you to understand how a franchise works or how video games work. So I try to, and I know this is really this is kind of difficult. I try to not talk about the story. So my my access point to the franchise and 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 in speaking about it and writing about. It, It, is not trying to look at all the products either. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to be an economist who's going to say, oh, this is successful as a product. But I'm trying to figure out how it works artistically, how it visually tries to complement all these different components it has, and how it can address. Different kinds of art styles that come with Disney, and that now there's this additional layer of the so-called complicated story that is really much like, like Kingdom Hearts has become like its own thing now. It's not just this Disney game anymore. It is its own franchise um, and with its own rights. Like I think um, you could easily play it without caring about Disney a lot. And it is the realization. Or the manifestation of this dream that I think all of us had at a certain point in our lives of just being wow, if I could be in a Disney movie, you know, yes. if I could live in this world of the Lion King, Hercules, if I could swim with the Little Mermaid, um, mm-hmm. like these are all the all the kind of dreams that Kingdom Hearts to a certain degree fulfills by having you play a character who visits all of these different worlds in a role that that you describe. If I understood your article that we'll link in the show notes correctly somewhat like a tourist going to disney world yes um i'm very much uh convinced that that was made on purpose from the very beginning um to briefly introduce people to who might be unfamiliar with like uh, how the story kind of begins so sora um is the protagonist and he becomes kind of cut off from his home world and then he's kind of sent around these different other worlds to um, mainly visit them but also try to um, figure out what the evil people are doing and these evil people are also like external to these worlds that he's visiting so they don't they are often interfering with how the flow of things of these worlds is supposed to be so Sora and his friends uh, who you might know Donald Duck and Goofy um, are also Also there to help him um, battling those enemies, and so we have a character who's very estranged from his environment. All the time he's encountering things and people that he doesn't know. Um, he is, um, but at the same time, he has this like youthful—not uh, just youthful look, but also um, boyish attitude to things he's very uh, quickly inspired by things he's happy most of the time optimistic so you have a you have a a, a hero who's um i would say kind of like an ideal disney 
visitor, uh, Disneyland visitor. He he's <laughs> just like, oh my god, this ride! It's so awesome, and I really want to try this out. And um, this is the kind of uh, feeling I get from Sora too. So I think it, I kind of equalize Sora with being a, a Disneyland visitor, and in the way he how he behaves. I think that's very apparent. I really like that um, that distinction for him because I think that uh, a lot of times people will try to, or people will maybe successfully make the argument that Sora is almost like a Disney movie character. You know, he's boundlessly optimistic. He's um, interested in doing the right thing. You know, so when you put him up against other Disney protagonists, that's he seems to kind of fit the mold. But I think that he also has a level of what you mentioned to be eagerness and sort of just wonder at things Mm -hmm. um, that I think does fit um, the description of a, of a tourist or a, or a Disneyland or Disney world visitor, somebody who's just endlessly excited about these things that are happening around them. So when I read your article in particular, I really, um, I really enjoyed that view of Sora in these games as less a, manipulatable object for the player and more of a representation of somebody who is experiencing these fantastic, you know, Disney worlds. And at the same time, players do take on his perspective, right? Because you are guided through this, through these worlds, through the eyes, I'm going to say here in quotation marks, of Sora. What does that mean? How, how are these worlds experienced? Apart from the fact that it's exciting, it is also somewhat, somewhat superficial, wouldn't you say? Superficial in in what sense? Superficial in a sense that it is, you know, when I think of the tourist gaze, I think of a gaze that is non-normatively focused on uh, things that are standing out, landmarks, you know, sightseeing, uh, things that stand out and that are somewhat, what's the right word for it, Uh, exotic, Mm -hmm. without necessarily the the, the, deeper understanding of the stratosphere of these worlds. Um, I, I think there might be an angle to that in a sense of, um, you know how in, in Star Trek, I'm sorry if I'm bringing up like something completely different, <laughs> but uh, you know how in Star Trek, they, they, they go to these other planets and they meet those civilizations, these new civilizations, and they usually try to not bring chaos onto them by basically revealing themselves to be uh, like being able of space travel but they usually do end up revealing that and that kind of happens within kingdom hearts 2 all the time sora is always trying to be like oh no we can't reveal that we are heroes or not heroes but um outsiders we're outsiders We, we have to behave as normal as possible but that is usually I think that most of the time that fails. I don't think that really works out. Yeah. What I what I find so interesting and, and why I really like the, the tourist gaze um, sort of angle on this is that you had mentioned earlier on too that um, these games, they, they have become their own franchise at this point. They're no longer the Disney Final Fantasy mashup. They're not really borrowing... Um, too heavily from them anymore. Um, They're really their their own story. And I think that when a character like Sora enters this world, what you find is that as someone, as the player, as someone who may be familiar with the story of the world that he's visiting, say Tarzan in the first game, um, you, you may know the story of Tarzan, the Disney movie in your head, but what you're seeing play out in front of you is something that is very different from the 
the story of the movie. There's certain beats that appear to be familiar. There's certain characters that are familiar, but in terms of what they're doing, it's kind of become something different. And I think that it's an interesting uh, way to look at that by saying, well, isn't, is that maybe because of the influence that you are putting onto this world by interacting with it as Sora? Sora's inter, uh, introduction to these places sort of you know changes the way that we observe them and changes the way that the story as we may, quote, understand it is happening, mm-hmm. yeah. which I think is, is similar to when I go to, uh, to Disney World and I ride the you know, Winnie the Pooh ride, I'm not really experiencing uh, the Winnie the Pooh movie it's something that's totally different from that, but has familiar objects that I recognize in it. Yeah. And going back to the point whether it's superficial or not, I think it's very easy to make that conclusion because at first, um, and I'm going to um, use one of the uh, worlds from Kingdom Hearts 3 as, as an example. Um, one of the first worlds you encounter is the one from Tangled, the animated, uh, the animation movie. And um, it's the tale about Rapunzel in the tower and uh, if you've seen especially with our technology nowadays it's very easy to recreate the digital assets that the um, animated movie uses so a lot of the times even when you look stand in front of Rapunzel's tower you feel like this looks exactly like in the movie and they capture that really well that they really try to almost identically use these um, visual points, these landscapes that you know from the movie, and repeat that again in the game. And um, I've I've made like a one to one by one comparison um, with the cutscenes before, and the cutscenes truly are almost identical. It's just that sometimes you will just see Sora standing in the corner, who's like looking at all this, and it's it's almost in a it's almost grotesque in a way that they do it because it feels at first, it feels a bit lazy. I have to admit, it feels a bit lazy in a sense of, oh man, they're just using the exact same scenes from the movie and it's very intentional. Um, but at the same time, I think, cause I'm, I'm basically at the point at my thesis where I'm still trying to explain uh, where I'm still working through the Disney part because I think when you talk about Kingdom Hearts, you kind of open this whole like plethora of this baggage of Disney. And you kind of still have to talk your way through it before you can arrive at the conclusion that no, this is not just like another extended arm of Disney, but it is its own thing. It has become its own thing. You mentioned the the tangled one-to-one i'm i'm not surprised that it was that close and one of my favorite i i I laughed out loud when this happened because i think that if you look at the prior games they do a good job of kind of melding the the kingdom hearts characters and the disney story a little bit but tangled and the frozen world also felt very much like this just feels like the movie and my favorite moment of that was uh at what is the climax of tangled there's a moment where I, in my memory, it the camera just pans to the window and there's Sora Donald yes. looking at it. <laughs> and so it was when, wonderful. Yes. And when you when you mentioned grotesque, I think it is that's one of those really standout moments of, oh right, Sora and the gang are here too. Let's remember yes. that this is something that's being experienced by other people. <laughs> it's it's wonderful. And you brought up Frozen already and with Frozen, I don't I don't know how you feel about Frozen. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie, but if you have 
younger relatives, you probably have experienced it through them when the kids are singing the frozen song. Uh, for me, it was my niece in Australia. She couldn't sing, stop singing the song, and she would play the video of of Elsa singing all day, every day. And then I remember playing Kingdom Hearts 3 and it just started playing the exact same scene. Just mm -hmm. sometimes it would pan over to Sora who's like, oh, oh my God, I hear someone singing. And yes, <laughs> and then, <laughs> and those moments were, yeah, I think grotesque is a good word because it, it, I, I laughed. I, I definitely laughed because I knew that these scenes were so iconic and um and it would confirm the suspicions of someone, if someone would tell me, um, aren't they just, isn't Disney, aren't they just using the same kind of assets? Are they trying to do something new with it? And if you would only look at the Disney worlds, I would even say, yes, sometimes they are. And I don't think it's the point of doing something new. It's really, truly trying to recreate these iconic moments that you know from these stories, um, but experienced through a different character. I also I also think that one of the things that the series does very well is it it looks beyond the actual. So you you mentioned earlier too on too that you know when you try to explain this you you try to stay away from what I would call the lore of Kingdom Hearts the very detailed story beats and everything. But I think that what it shares with its source materials is that Kingdom Hearts is very interested in particular themes, and I would argue that those themes are. Um, you know, control of control of oneself or of someone else. Um, this idea of feeling like an outsider, never really being a part of something. And so, um, when I hear tourist gaze mentioned in Kingdom Hearts, I have a million different thoughts. And one of them that that um, came to mind when I after I had read your article and we were kind of prepping for this interview was um, I think maybe the clearest example is in the first game when you go to the world that is based on the Hercules movie um, and cloud strife is there, but cloud is not really cloud. He's sort of this amalgamation of a few final fantasy seven characters. Um, and he's also been molded to fit the theme of kingdom hearts, which is light versus darkness, you know, being together versus being on one's own. And so here we have this very this very interesting world very early on in the game where it's also not the Hercules story. The Hercules setting is almost this backdrop where they can explore these themes of heroism versus um, or heroism and then light versus darkness, you know, and what that what that kind of means to this world. Um, the Kingdom Hearts world, I mean, yeah. sort of generally speaking. Um, so I think that from an early stage, it was very interested in saying let's step back a few layers and look at what we're putting together here and then step forward again and see what the new synthesis has become. And the, the tourism aspect, I think, is a really great window into what they're trying to do with it. Yeah. For me, um, the tourist uh, gaze aspect is so interesting as a, as a way of analyzing things because you can really um, not just understand the game, but um, I think the tourist case is already very deeply embedded into anything Disney related. Well, not anything Disney related. Let's say the Disneyland, Disneyland related. And I do kind of equalize Kingdom Hearts a bit with Disneyland, but that 
also has something to do to do with me arguing in my thesis that video games or the video games industry in, in general has a lot of things to do with Disney and what we call uh, Disneyization. So the processes in culture and society that has uh, been pushed by Disney. So Disney was not, um, or Disneyland was not like the uh, one aspect of Disneyization, for example, is merchandising, hybrid consumption. These are obviously not things that were invented by Disney um, as such, but they were accelerated by Disney. And I kind of see the video game industry as, as part of this, as um, kind of bringing these things um, again. So there's, there's a lot of layers to speak about when we try to analyze um how we situate ourselves in so with the tourist gaze within something like Disneyland that already is embedded in greater structures like Disneyization. So you can see this is this is quite a big thing it's a deep to well. do. It's yes, and <laughs> I'm trying to navigate myself through that, and it's been uh, difficult because I don't know if I um, haven't uh, burdened myself with a bit of a. Is this already, I think this is almost dissertation level than it is a master thesis level. I don't know if I can do this in 60 pages, but yeah. Uh, I, I'm quite confident that it's possible because the thing is that you can establish this as a background. And I do think you have a very interesting point there in saying, technically, if you think of Skyrim, if you think of The Witcher, if you think of Assassin's Creed, Assassin's Creed is basically like historical tourism, right? Yes. Yeah. You've, yes. Got this, you've got this kind of tourist gaze that is indeed deeply entrenched in video game culture and at the same mm -hmm. time i find one aspect of of kingdom hearts particularly interesting which is that not only is sora visiting these worlds and not only is he basically looking at at the worlds as such but he also is somewhat like integrated which would um which would maybe counteract this idea of of him being like an, an outsider uh, tourist because when he joins, for example, when he enters the Toy Story world, then he becomes a Toy Story figure, you know? He, yes. he becomes in most, yeah. in most worlds, if not all, I'm not quite sure, I can't, it's been so many years ago, but he also becomes part of these worlds. That's, that is kind of an interesting modification of that tourist gaze, right? Almost like, almost like putting on a costume. Yes. Just as a disclaimer, in my thesis, I'm nowhere close to analyzing Kingdom Hearts itself yet as a game yet. So <laughs> <laughs> it's um, it's so far I'm still working my way up to it. Um, but what I'm at the moment working on is a big section on theming. So Disneyization is a is a is a is the term to describe different structures and processes in our society and culture. Um, theming is one of the most important aspects, if not the important aspect. So um, video games, you know, Assassin's Creed, they theme themselves after the, according to whatever they call history. And um, in a way, these costumes and Sora suddenly um, having, it's not just his costumes, it's his, his weapons too that you can unlock once you like finish um, one of these worlds and then you get a fitting keychain that's his, you know, keyblade, key sorry, uh, keyblade that is his main weapon. They are all themed. So in a way, I, I also think that's a very Disney thing to do. So having all these themed items, themed costumes. Um, also, when you think of Disneyland, um, when you enter specific worlds, um, you will see uh, well, I think the one example I have, uh, the current Star Wars world in the uh, US uh, Disneylands, if you enter there, um, if you enter those lands, it would be weird to not see a stormtrooper, wouldn't it? 
So um, I think everything has to be according to the theme. And it also, of course, has something to do with Sora trying to camouflage himself in these worlds to try to be part of it. I think that's an interesting point to make that the the Disneyization of even the, the Keyblades in the game, because um, I'm just thinking of, you know, compare it to the other source material, the Final Fantasy series. Um, each character may have a themed weapon, you know, a, a particular type of weapon that they use, but it's not like you get a a weapon that's themed to the town you just left in a, in a Final Fantasy game. It's just a different weapon of that type. Whereas, right, if you leave, you know, the Little Mermaid world, after you've just been a mermaid to fit into the world, you get a Little Mermaid-themed Keyblade as you leave. So one thing that um, that comes to mind that I didn't know until I actually moved down to Orlando, Florida and went to Disney World for the first time, um, there's, a, there's an idea in Kingdom Hearts where all of these worlds are cut off from one another and they're not, you're not meant to um, travel between them. And if that's sort of why they have the Star Trek Prime Directive, don't mess with it if you're visiting because you're not supposed to do this. And one thing that's very interesting about the way Disney World, and I believe Disneyland too, were built, is that they're built very deliberately so that if you are in one section of the park, you can't see anything from any other section of the park. So if you're in, um, you know, the, if you're in Magic Kingdom and you're, in the center of it and you see the castle, you're not going to be seeing, you know, anything from Tomorrowland or, or from any other part. So there is this sense of keep everything themed, keep it separate and keep it together. So having never set foot in uh, US Disneyland, I can only um, say that the things I know from the US Disneyland are just purely uh, from off, uh, of books and different sources that I'm working with. Um, but I do ha- I have been to Disneyland in uh, in Tokyo before, so um, I can o- totally confirm that. Um, there's um, there's um, a former Imagineer at Disney uh, named uh, Scott um, Scott Rogers. Yes, that's his name. Uh, so Imagineer, um, um, a, a word that uh, Disney uh, engineers give themselves um, who are basically creative uh, engineers so they work they design the landscapes at Disneyland they design the um, uh, they they decide on the themes so their work is can be very um, in in our time now it can be very much um, related to computers to programming how do we program this right perfectly or uh, it can also be very artistic in a sense of uh, what kind of paint are we going to use to make the black spires in the star wars land make as tall as they could be and how can we add depth so their work is very uh, interesting and in a different section of my thesis i'm kind of arguing that they're not very different from video game designers in a way mm. um but um to not drift off too far from that um there's uh, Scott uh, Rogers, interestingly, turned uh, to be, um, well, left his job and then became a game designer. And he was then involved in a lot of the uh, AAA titles and a lot of um, bigger game developers, studios that, you know, Sony, uh, Ubisoft, I think. And he often works as a consultant as an, or as an advisor. And what you, like, you ref- Dan, you just referred to the uh, castle you'd see in the middle, and he would refer to the castle, for example, as a weenie. And there's a bit of a funny word. 
Um, but a weenie is basically a um, uh, a landmark, um, architectural landmark that kind of appetites you, and you will also recognize where you are right now and what you will be walking towards to. And let's say you're walking towards the castle, and you look left and right, and you can see other weenies that might kind of indicate you where you're going. So these are kind of um, landmarks that appetite like make you kind of expect what what's next and once you go these routes and these directions you will see more and more weenies that will you know complete the landscape that you find yourselves in and um so scott rogers you can see that his his principles in game design definitely are derived from his work as an Imagineer at Disney. And I think that's so interesting. It's, it's still, we're talking about a time where uh, open world games were not as common as they are now. And there wasn't this like directive of trying to make it as openly as possible, but having l relatively limited digital space to work with. So in order to have that space work with the player, you had to basically lead and guide them through these kind of spaces. And um, Kingdom Hearts is not an open world game. It is very much still in that mentality of structured spaces, um, giving the player a little bit to work with and then working their way through from A to B and building their anticipation. I find that interesting too, the idea of the the landmark that you're kind of working towards. And I find that in a lot of Kingdom Hearts sort of levels, if you want to call them, um, those landmarks are almost, sometimes they are physical objects in the world that you're visiting, but then other times it may be your knowledge of the movie where you're saying, oh, I understand what's supposed to happen next. I think that may be what I should do. Yes. Which is a, an interesting concept for... It, it it asks a lot of the player to sort of, I don't know, do homework or kind of bring certain expectations to the game before they come to it. It speaks both to the level design and to Henry Jenkins' notion of convergence culture because we're speaking of a convergence that is not just... This is not just like a theme park kind of exploration thing, but this is something you might know already from... Um, from the movie or if you know if you're already familiar with video games then you might know that linear levels like this mean that you're supposed to see something very soon um and i think it is so interesting that with kingdom hearts you can't even really tell where it stops being like it is an, an ultimate product of convergence culture it merges so many aesthetics and one of the Kingdom Hearts games, you also, um, and it's, I think it was one of my favorite ones, and I forgot which, I think it was in Kingdom Hearts 2, where you visit um, the 2D black and white world of um, Mickey Mouse's first feature animation film that is the, where he's on the steamship. Um, steam yes. The steamboat, yes, that one. Kingdom Hearts 2, yep. Yeah, and um, it's wonderful because, again, Sora becomes um, like more 2D. I guess, <laughs> and um, uh, and the world is obviously black and white, so the visual contrast is just very, very striking. The sound design changes to have scratches and hisses. It's great. Yeah, and um, this is something that is going beyond like what a theme park could do. Um, I think a theme park can do a lot of great things, but um, as like media specific. Um, Abilities like video games can really enhance these kind of experiences. 
um, and that that world is definitely one of my favorite ones that I remember vividly uh, as as a teenager playing Kingdom Hearts 2, yes. I've got one last question on my sheet here that I would really like to ask you, Antu. Yeah. And that is, you know, Disney has, has changed over time quite profoundly and we've seen like the acquisition of Star Wars as an basically not originally Disney-created IP, but an acquisition, a licensed acquisition. How do you see this influencing the Kingdom Hearts games in the future, if they're going to be Kingdom Hearts games in the future, which I assume there will. Well, I think, I mean, uh, not to spoil the end of Kingdom Hearts 3, but it seems very open, as in the gates seem to be open for possible further um, titles in the franchise, which is, I know, I think people are, were getting a little bit tired of that because franchises are nowadays a bit, you know, I think we all know how it works a little bit and they always <laughs> try to lure you in with more uh, narrative incentives. Um, but um, so I think one one thing that I have a problem with, with, even with my own thesis, that maybe I'm wondering if I'm not giving Disney too much credit. And I think that at first that sounds a bit irritating because yes, you're right. Disney is has changed a lot as a media company. They seem to be acquiring titles left and right. And um, what's um, a, a different term that is a bit opposing to Disneyization is Disneyfication. So it's a very like, negatively attributed um, term describing um, things that become Disneyfied and the question whether products are becoming more Disneyfied. So, um, for example, how uh, movies um, bought out by Disney can't really talk about these really difficult topics like racism. Um, or um, America's past, a colonial past, that they are kind of like losing the ability to talk about these things because they become Disneyfied in a in a sense of trying to make it as child friendly as possible. And uh, I know that Disney itself cannot be understated as a company, and uh, I am really much aware of that. So I'm not trying to um, underplay their role. At the same time, I remember this is an anecdote from the conference where I pitched the uh, article the on Kingdom Hearts. Someone came up to me and, and said, you know what, I don't think you, we really need those Disney worlds because if you try to summarize Kingdom Hearts as a story, you're never going to talk about the Disney worlds because that's not where the, where the plot and where the story leads to. It's kind of like a grinding area to you know get your levels up and i thought that was an interesting take on the on the franchise because it is true i mean in a way yes sora makes his friends in those disney worlds but they are not really extremely relevant to the overall plot that what at least to what kingdom hearts has become now and this is still where i'm undecided okay um this is still like an open question but given that it is not just Disney who's working on this, it is also Square Enix, who in their own right are also really powerful in the video game industry. I think with the development of the franchise, it has become something on its own and something where Disney almost seems gimmicky. Gimmicky or, or maybe particularly in the third one, uh, almost, almost a little restrictive yeah. in the sense that it's become something different at this point where that... that um, that person who came up to you, I, I understand where they're coming from. I disagree in the sense that I think they all have, you know, theming that is relevant to the the game story. But I would say that you certainly feel that in the third one, where you think, "Can we get to the 
the Kingdom Hearts <laughs> stuff now. <laughs> yeah, we we like to think of Disney as this American thing, but I still have to read it. But there's an article by a Japanese scholar that I, like I said, I still have to read. But his, I think one of his. One of one of his lines in the text that goes something like Disneyland is the most Japanese thing to exist in America. I'm still wondering <laughs> what he means by that, um, but I think that gives uh, food for thought. Um, given that you know Square Enix, although obviously um, cooperating on a very global level now, just like Disney buying titles left and right, um, they are still um, they still see themselves somewhere as like this Japanese game developer company who's like focused on these story-driven games um uh that is i think um still associated with popular titles such as final fantasy says unto nuyen thank you so very much for this interview for this nice conversation for contemplating kingdom hearts as a disney theme park with us and if you dear listeners want to dive further into this subject then you can find an article that she has written titled the theme park experience kingdom hearts and the franchise linked in our show notes you can of course also follow her on twitter that is at kde nguyen i'll probably just Oh, you can find the link in the show notes. We'll just link her Twitter in our show notes. And I highly encourage you to do so. Well, then we've got some more Kingdom Hearts stuff to get into. And we'll do that in our side quests. Listeners, uh, as you probably know, but if you don't, With a Terrible Fate primarily does its analytical work in written content on withaterriblefate.com, analyzing the storytelling of video games from an analytical perspective, but within that methodology, looking at them from all angles, uh, bringing in all kinds of academic and non-academic backgrounds. And hopefully you've had the chance to check out some of those articles. If not, I strongly encourage you to do so. But uh, this is an exciting week on the podcast because for the first time since we launched this new podcast of With the Terrible Fates, a new article has been published on the publication. And so I thought it would be fun to go on a journey with all of you and dig further into the article than is available merely in the written text by having a conversation with the analyst right here on the air. And I'm hoping that that can become the norm rather than the exception as we publish further articles and use the podcast as a venue to dive deeper into the people behind them. I think it's an appropriate theme that we've been digging into the last couple of weeks that personal experience can oftentimes deeply inform how we think about games in ways that can be really productive and interesting uh, and conducive to even better understanding the analyses that we're after if we really understand what has motivated those analyses. And so it's in that spirit that I'm very excited for my side quest to feature our fearless uh, adventurer and podcast <laughs> leader, uh, Dan Hughes, uh, in a different light than merely co-hosting the podcast, uh, but actually as an analyst who... Merely? <laughs> well, you know, he's a man of many hats, and we have to honor all of those hats. Uh, there's, there's some joke in there about Sora and Kingdom Hearts 2 and all his different forms and Dan's many forms, but I'm sure the listeners got there themselves. <laughs> Dan, you had the distinction of publishing an article last week that I know from conversations with you has been on your mind for literally years at this point, I would say. It's called Understanding Xemnas in Kingdom Hearts 2. 
You can find it on With a Terrible Fate uh, in our Little Kingdom Hearts corner or also in the featured and recent article sections of our homepage. And Dan, I'm excited to dig into this with you. I'm excited also to chat about what some of the readership has wanted to ask you further about. But I figure as a way into it, we could just, uh, especially for those listeners who might not have had occasion to read it yet, talk a little bit about its subject matter. So perhaps we could start by you telling us in one sentence what the pitch for this article is. So like you said, um, I am, I'm a huge Kingdom Hearts fan. I have one of the symbols tattooed on my body. Um, and uh, I've been following it since it came out back in 2001, 2002. And Kingdom Hearts 2 especially has been um, very important to me, uh, not just in, um, in terms of a story that I find really incredible, but also in terms of understanding how video games work and how I understand them. So I, take, I put a lot of stock in lines that um, characters will say, and one that has stuck with me for a very long time is the last spoken line that Xemnas has, um, the main antagonist of the game, before the final fight with him begins. Um, which is a simple line that I, I think demands attention, which is why I gave it so much. And that line is, no more eternal than that radiance of yours. Um, I've been sitting and stewing with that line since I played the game 16 years ago. And so this article is sort of a dissection of that line and what I think it means for the character and for the game. Could you repeat the line again? Yes. Um, so to give it some context, um, the the final battle between... Sora, our protagonist, Sora Riku, um, and our antagonist, Xemnas, um, they're having sort of a, an ideological battle with one another where Xemnas says, he's basically explaining his existence by saying, if these forces in this game, light and darkness, are eternal, then surely we nothings, this idea of a nobody, which we can get into, we must also be the same, eternal. Sora and Riku rebut him, saying... Those concepts may be eternal, but you, the entity, are not. And so Xemnas responds with, no more eternal than that radiance of yours. And it seems such an impenetrable line. Um, and I, I've also gone so far as to listen. I've played this game in Japanese many times as well. Um, there's not a whole lot of translation uh, going on there. It's kind of one-to-one in what he says. Sometimes in, in translations, lines can seem sort of strange or they can seem to take on a new meaning once they're uh, taken into English, but his Japanese line is, is basically the same meaning as it has in English. So it's just stuck with me for a very long time, and I thought, if I can figure that out, maybe I can understand the game a little bit better. Is this basically one of these iconic sequences that you have in, in games where the, the bad guy reveals their plot and um, explains their paradigm, their motivation to the protagonist before eventually then obviously ending up in a boss fight? <laughs> exactly that. Yep. So this is, um, I would say, even more than revealing their plot, um, this line is Xemnas sort of revealing his understanding of his own existence in a strange way. And I think that Kingdom Hearts fans will agree with me in saying that the beauty of Kingdom Hearts 2 is that there really isn't an evil plot to be stopped. It's, it's really a game about these characters called nobodies trying to fully actualize themselves, which is an interesting um, thing to make your Disney Square Enix tie-in game about. 
So Dan, of course, if people want to see the whole story, they can read your article and I encourage them to do so. But succinctly here for the sake of our podcast, uh, after looking at that line and thinking about it and analyzing it, what do you think it means? What's the interesting thing you're able to surface by contemplating it in this way? Sure. And without without giving the article away, because um, I do encourage people to read it, I'll just give you sort of the look at 10,000 feet. Kingdom Hearts 2 presents us with this idea of a particular entity called a nobody. And we are told that a nobody cannot feel anything, that they are emotionless, and that if they are, ex- if they are exhibiting emotions, they are lying to you. Um, and yet, while we are being told that, we see various instances of these nobodies, these characters, clearly experiencing very effusive emotion. And so it seems like the game is kind of at odds with itself. It's telling us one thing, it's showing us a different thing. And in that sort of difference, I think you have the character, the main antagonist, Zemnis, trying to adjudicate those two points. And what I think that the game really interestingly does is ask the player... Um, what it means to be an NPC, a non-playable character, um, or just a character in a story. And uh, it asks the, in- the interesting question of, if a character were to somehow understand their role in a story, particularly in a video game story, what exactly would that look like? And I think it looks like Kingdom Hearts 2. One of the things uh, that we teased when we were first introducing this podcast was hopefully providing uh, at least some gamers who are interested in digging into video games more like this, but perhaps have not in the past, uh, with a little bit of the background and tools to explain how to really go about this. And I feel like Kingdom Hearts uh, in general, and Kingdom Hearts 2 as well, is a great proving ground for helping people to do that, because I know for many people who have played the series, it can feel kind of impenetrable and hard to get into this kind of analysis, simply because the perceived plot can be seen as so complicated, and I think many people would say convoluted, right? And so given the kind of challenging and unusual ontology of characters in the Kingdom Hearts world, where you know, even as it later gets more complicated in Kingdom Hearts 2, you already have things like Heartless and Nobodies and a lot to keep track of, right? Could you give us a little background and insight into how you adjudicated that uh, and reached the point where you could give kind of a succinct thematic analysis of what is going on with a line that's as hard to access as Xemnas's line here? I think one thing that... Um people who play video games can get wrapped up in very easily is the lore of long running series, um, where things can start to blur together very easily, where I can be referencing something from Metal Gear Solid one. And someone will say, but wait a minute, that was, that was, uh, that wasn't true in Metal Gear Solid four. That was retconned or that was changed. And my answer to that would be, but it still happened in Metal Gear Solid one and Metal Gear Solid one exists as its own, discrete text. And so Kingdom Hearts, like Metal Gear Solid, is uh, a a seemingly very complicated series with a lot going on in it. And I think that the joke of Kingdom Hearts is that no one knows what's happening in it. Um, And I would put it to to everyone listening, um, and I think fans would agree with me on this, certain things in the the lore or the story can be kind of complicated, but the themes of each individual game are not very complex. So to understand this character and this line, I took a look at Kingdom Hearts 2 on its own and looked at the, the examples and the text that were provided in that game. 
So I didn't look to revelations that were made in later installments about this character. Um, I didn't even really reference the first um, or sort of middle game, Kingdom Hearts 1 or Kingdom Hearts Chain of Memories, to sort of make this point. I basically took it as if, it, as if Kingdom Hearts 2 were a book. I just looked at it um, uh, and what was presented in it and used that as my, my reference base. And I think that um, if you approach these long-running series in that way, you not only get a better sense of the themes that are being presented in that particular installment, but you kind of get a clearer picture of the overall ideas that the series is presenting. Whether you want to look at that through kind of an auteur theory lens or if you just want to take the text as given to you, um, I think it's a very good exercise in piecing together these, these game stories that can be kind of convoluted to us when we first look at them. Now, you said that Xemnas is an example of a character that um, gains some kind of insight on uh, what it means to be a character in a video game. Can you explain a little bit how that works? Absolutely. So I think that um, to understand that is uh, very quickly, the word nobody and non-playable character um, are very interchangeable in Kingdom Hearts 2. And the kind of brilliance of Xemnas as a character is that he recognizes through what he's saying that there is some force outside of himself and outside of the other characters with whom he is interacting that is imbuing characters like Sora and Riku with this different kind of agency. There's something about these characters that is different from himself and from his comrades in the antagonistic group Organization 13. And what's so interesting to me about Xemnas as a character is that the entire final fight um, with him, the long sequence of multiple battles that you have with him, all of his dialogue in the final level, this is all sort of kenning or gesturing towards this idea that Xemnas realizes that there's something different about himself and the characters that he's interacting with who are controlled by us, the player. Um, and I think that that final line is his final understanding that um, even that agency that the player is giving to those characters is finite. As soon as you walk away from the PlayStation 2, everything stops for these people. Um, which, again, is a very interesting idea to put forth in a game where you do uh, engage in a musical <laughs> with Ariel and the other characters from The Little Mermaid. <laughs> I find that super interesting because the thing is that it's not, it doesn't seem to me like a full on fourth wall break, right? right? It's not a great train robbery where at the end you have one of the robbers basically fire a gun into the screen or uh, a game where the avatar turns around and waves into the non-existent, into the virtual camera basically acknowledging the existence of the player, but it happens within the framework of the story without breaking that fourth wall. I find that a very fine line to walk. Yes, and I think that... Um This is why, going back to a conversation we had in a previous episode, um, I think it's important not just to take these games as their own texts, but to also understand that they're using, they're using film language. Um, so they're not explicitly having Xemnas turn to the character Deadpool style and say to the audience, I yeah. know what you're doing, yeah. right? But there are moments where what he's saying aligns with how the camera is viewing him. So there's, there's one, um, one moment that is the, the banner photo for the article where he's sort of prostrating himself before Kingdom Hearts. 
the entity and he's um, it's shot in a way that he is almost talking to uh, an audience outside of himself. And then that final line that I'm referencing, the camera um, completely turns on him and he very deliberately looks into the quote camera of the video game to say no more eternal than that radiance of yours. And then the final fight starts. So there is, while not explicit, these sort of subliminal references to this character having this strange understanding that, you know, things are not what they seem in his, uh, in his life. I think that this is a point that's worth dwelling on because it, it's a natural extension of what we were talking about last week in terms of the role of players versus the role of avatars. And I think while this kind of analysis is second nature to a lot of what we do on with a terrible fate, it can be kind of counterintuitive and jarring to the uninitiated because you're right, Stefan. I mean, when you when you talk about stories that reference the audience, I think the immediate assumption is that they're doing something avant-garde or post-modernist and characters are in one way or another actually directly speaking to the audience. Uh, but I think in many cases, as, as the case that you're talking about now, Dan, there seems to be a way to read the stories of video games where they're actually best understood as involving the players and their agency in some direct way that is not equivalent to the avatar um, but that is also not this kind of direct fourth wall break where the agency of the players is just a kind of force that figures centrally into the story but i think unpacking exactly what motivates that methodology for you dan is is important because you get misunderstandings when people are trying to understand this for the first time, right? And uh, I, I think maybe to the credit of people who play Kingdom Hearts, it seemed actually, like you said, most of the people who played Kingdom Hearts really uh, grokked what you were grasping at and uh, understood that this is something with which no more is concerned. But you, you did get some comments like, um, just to shout out some folks, right? Uh, the aptly named generic developer user on Reddit uh, made the observation that this struck him to be speculative fan fiction, which was not that helpful because he didn't explain what he took speculative fan fiction to be, nor why he took this to be an instance of it. Um, and another user, Swifter, uh, made the observation, which is uh, a more common one, that he didn't feel he or she didn't feel as if this analysis uh, was the intent of the writers, right? And and to the credit and to be charitable to both of these interlocutors, right? I think that when you start talking about the player and you're not just identifying the player with the avatar like Sora, right? There can be a sense where people immediately run to the conclusion that oh, you're doing something that speculates beyond the text of the game and you're going off the rails of what the author meant to do with it and what the actual plot of the game is in order to say something that's just, you know, um, headcanon or whatever the common parlance for it is now, right? So how would you distinguish your method and how you're bringing the player into the story from those other methodologies and acts of interacting with the story that seem to be in the vicinity for many people? Well, I think that... Um, I understand the, the point that, oh, this sounds like speculative fan fiction, or I don't think this is what the author meant. And um, to the first point, I would say I'm not taking anything that isn't presented to us in the video game. Um, I'm not reaching for, you know, my own, you know, stories that I've concocted or anything like that. I'm just looking at the lines and the, the filmic language that's being used. 
um, the setup, all these kinds of things. Um, in terms of what the author meant, I don't know what the author meant. Um, and until I, unless and until I have the opportunity to sit down with Tetsuya Nomura and ask him a billion questions, um, I won't know. But you probably will still not know afterwards. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yep. I'll come away with two billion questions. Um, but I, I still won't. I still wouldn't really know. And and to that, I would say I, I also don't kind. I kind of don't care. Um, I think it's interesting that he's he's preoccupied with these ideas of. Um, agency and what it means to be sort of like a shell or a character or a vessel, these kinds of things pop up in his work a lot. But um, it doesn't really change the fact that that's the reading that that I took from it. Um, and I think that uh, the way the way to go about this kind of this kind of analysis is to be aware of yourself and rein yourself in when you find yourself going down possible fan fiction routes. So when you start taking leaps that aren't necessarily um, there in the game, I think that's when you run into these issues. But the way that I do it is I say, okay, well, there are certain things in Kingdom Hearts 2 that make sense to me um, just off the bat. I, I don't have to think about them too much, um, <clears throat> and I find them very compelling. These are things like, you know, the... The, sort of the the quote power of friendship that Sora and his friends have, right? That is very face value. But I think that if if you are trying to explain the final sequence with Xemnas, the final fight, it is very difficult if I ask you simple questions such as, what is he trying to do? Or what is his point? What is it that he wants? It's not as easy as a simple one-word answer. Right, and I think that um, that's where you start looking in the text and trying to find those inconsistencies and trying to square them, which is why in my article I couch this line in this strange thing that's happening where we are told one thing about these characters and we see a completely different thing. Why is that happening in the text? I don't think it's a mistake. I don't think it's a failure of storytelling. I think it's deliberate. So if I approach the game on those terms that that is a deliberate choice that the creator is making then my job now is to figure out what that means and that's that's how i go about these kinds of close readings i think i approach close readings and textual analyses in very similar ways and maybe that is something um we can uh thank uh swiftster for here for <laughs> bringing up that uh, that point of it's not the intent of the writers because maybe we can uh, further down the line do an episode on uh, the significance of authorial intention or authoritative intention authorial right yeah yeah authorial intention um and how that can uh, factor into analyses and what the difference is between trying to f this is a confusion that my students also have all the time as in writing like what what is the message what is the author trying to tell me maybe that's not all that relevant even if it's just a random sequence of words that have no specific intention behind them there's still a meaning there's still something that you can parse that you can uh, interpret there i would say to that point too stefan because i think the the common rebuttal to that is well can't a line just be a line and i would say i suppose but isn't that a boring way to engage with these things wouldn't it be kind of more fun to think i wonder why they put that in that why did they write it like that or why did that show up at that time right I yeah think exactly at that time exercise. because it's also not just any line that randomly occurs but it's an pivotable moment mm. of the 
of the story, right? It's placed in a very significant spot, giving you where, I mean, even though I can't really remember it, to be honest, it's been so long ago, but where most video games, most stories give you this kind of understanding of what's going on before then coming to a conclusion. Right. Or to a cliffhanger. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I want to ask you more about the substance of your reading in that line, uh, or actually give you the opportunity to uh, answer questions that more of your readership have asked about your interpretation. Um, one really provocative comment uh, that I know even you and I have been talking uh, a decent amount about between the publication and now is a gentleman named Derek uh, raised the point that you know you tie this analysis of Zemnus and nobodies to this notion of what it is to feel cut off from this power of agency with which Sora and Riku and the other protagonists are imbued by virtue of being connected to the player, right? Um, but Derek made the observation that canonically, which I take to mean within the understood text and reality of, yeah, yeah, exactly. Within the context of the fiction, it's, it's just understood as fact that the player actually does uh, impart that agency to nobodies or play as nobodies on more than one occasion, right? Uh, the the occasion in Kingdom Hearts 2 being the opening sequence of the game where the player plays as Roxas, who we later learn is a nobody, right? So in terms of how you're analyzing nobodies as NPCs, how do you adjudicate or, or how are you thinking about adjudicating that analysis with this understanding that the player does sometimes occupy the role of a nobody, at least uh, at first glance? Yes. Yeah, so this is a, a follow-up article that I'm, I'm itching to write. Um, and I would like to say that um, I agree with Derek. There are multiple occasions in the series where you play as these nobodies, particularly Kingdom Hearts 358 and a half days. <laughs> Uh, which My follows, goodness. yes, exactly, <laughs> Stefan. <Yeah. laughs> which follows um, the uh, the organization thirteen members. You get to play as as those characters, um, and I take his point. Um, and I would also say that we're kind of making the same point, which is that Kingdom Hearts two uh, does not have all of those characters playable. It is solely Roxas. It is just Roxas, and then you move on to Sora. And I would argue that the sequence between Roxas and Axel in the first few hours of the game, which I allude to in my article, are some of the, if not the most, emotionally resonant scenes in Kingdom Hearts 2. And I would make the argument that they are allowed to be that emotionally resonant because the player is controlling Roxas at that time. And the tragedy of Roxas and Axel is that once that agency leaves Roxas, at least in the context of Kingdom Hearts 2, that relationship kind of fades away. Um, and it's, I think, for anyone who likes Kingdom Hearts, is a, they're probably a fan of Axel, and I think that he is kind of the conduit through which that tragedy plays out in Kingdom Hearts 2. You don't play as him, but you do get to experience his grasping at this agency that he lacks. So um, what I would say is that the later installments in the franchise are basically asking the question, well, okay, we've gotten close to these characters because of their inter because of their appearance in Kingdom Hearts 2. Those organization members are very popular. They're very um, interesting to people. And so what if we did give them that agency? What would happen? And what happens is one of the saddest games in the franchise, <laughs> the 358 and a half days, um, which again, I would link to being 
the most perhaps emotionally resonant um, because the central question of that game is what if we made these people real to you? Um, and that's a really hard question to ask when you're playing a video game. I think that one of the things that was really um, surprising and provocative to me about your article, exactly in line with what you just said about the context of agency in Kingdom Hearts 2 versus what it sets up for later games, um, like 358 and a Half Days, is this idea that on some level, this observation that you're making about the role of the player's agency and how it relates to characters who are separated from it sets up a lot of the further evolution of the storytelling that happens in later games in a way where, you know, as we talked about at the beginning, Kingdom Hearts can seem like a very hard series to navigate. But I, I think it's fair to say that for at least some people who have played the series, this analysis of yours gave them a cipher for engaging with how those later games are related to the earlier ones. I loved reading some of these comments, uh, like a guy by the name of Adam made the observation after reading it that one of his biggest issues with Kingdom Hearts 3 was how much it takes away from the moral dilemma that is Organization 13 of Kingdom Hearts 2. I, I love that turn of phrase, thinking of the organization as a moral dilemma. And a user, another user on Reddit uh, with the username Thomas Gray W, uh, who was a big fan of the metatextual approach we talked about earlier, also speculated, uh, I wonder how this ties into Kingdom Hearts 3 with its implications of other realities, uh, such as with Yozora and Shibuya. And so I think you, you really got people thinking about how this thought about Xemnas and the organization can be extended to other games. I know you already talked about one potential follow-up, but are you thinking about extending it to games like Kingdom Hearts 3 as well? Uh, and do you have any preliminary thoughts as to how, as these readers are wondering about, um, your analysis might inform things like the moral universe of Kingdom Hearts or how it plays with multiple layers of reality in those later games? Absolutely. And um, I would I would tease people by saying this. I think that it is a fairly um, it is fairly common amongst Kingdom Hearts fans to think of Xemnas as being two or three separate characters, because in Kingdom Hearts two he's very he's written to be very one way, and then in uh, the follow up games he seems to be very different. And uh, I think that people have a hard time squaring these different sort of uh, the way that the, this character is written in later games because Kingdom Hearts 2 is so powerful to them. Um, and so I do want to talk about that, how the nature of a nobody or non-playable character changes in Kingdom Hearts. And I would say that um, without getting in the weeds, because I could talk about this forever, as you both know, um, that the, the key to figuring that out is uh, looking at just, just as we do, just as I do with Kingdom Hearts 2, looking at the main antagonist and what his goal ultimately is, I think that the answer lies in looking at the overarching antagonist, Master Xehanort, and what his plan is. And I think without going too much into it, it is basically like saying, um, what if I became the player? What if I, Xehanort, were like the player and I was able to control these people like a player controls an avatar. And if you think about the characters in the follow-up follow -up games and their differences as being couched in those terms, I think you will come to terms with why they are so differently presented to us. 
Now, before we close the chapter on Kingdom Hearts, I want to ask you a final personal question because you referenced <laughs> that you have a tattoo on your on your body, a Kingdom Hearts tattoo. Okay, which which kind of symbol is it? <laughs> Why is it there? And if you and if that is a question that can be answered on a podcast, which body part? <laughs> yes, this is uh, all information I will take to my grave. No, <laughs> I have um, I have. Uh, on my right wrist, um, I have the symbol that's most associated with birth by sleep belonging to sort of the counterpart to the villain, Master Ericus. And uh, I was very I was very happy that, because I got it before Kingdom Hearts 3 came out, I was very happy that it was not revealed to be a horrible symbol and that it <laughs> remained a, a symbol of sort of um, pride and, and decency and all of that good stuff. That was a big bet with all of Nomura's twists it, and turns. Absolutely. It was a real it was a real gamble that I could have come away with a, a really bad symbol on my body. Dan, I, I know we're pushing time. I want to ask you one more question to frame up perhaps uh, what else we might be looking at in future articles and also to shout out Swifter one more time because beyond thinking about authorial intent, Swifter also raised the really interesting point of what he or she referred to as the the bigger question raised by this analysis in terms of how and whether fictional characters really exist and how we might think about their existence in relation to our own as players and just as human beings. Um, you know, and some listeners might know this is something that we've really been self-consciously considering in a lot of our work on the site. And as, as you said, it has applications later in Kingdom Hearts uh, as well. So hopefully we'll see that in some of your follow-up articles. But especially in terms of this really interesting analysis you've spun out about NPCs, which has gotten me to reconsider NPCs in a lot of interesting ways, has, has thinking about them in that way and considering Xemnas in that light informed your approach or how you think about NPCs in other video games at all? Has it changed you as a gamer? I think, I think that it informed me as a gamer when I played Kingdom Hearts 2 as a, as a kid. I think that um, it, it's hard to adjudicate these, these characters who are presenting some of the most um, relatable emotional experiences I think I've ever seen and, and kind of also saying, but they're not real. And I think it, it invites the question, well, what is real to us when we're engaging with a story? Um, what do we take away from it? And one of the, the lines that I end with in my article is, I think it's important for us to think about not only what the characters give us, but what we are taking from them when we engage with a story. So I think more so than novels or movies, um, because it's such an interactive medium, we are front and center with them. And so... Obviously, I'm not having delusions that these characters are going to be popping into my living room anytime soon. Um, but I do think that it changes the way that you, you think of them as entities. Of course, dear listeners out there, if you want to dive deeper into this topic, then you can check out Dan's article, Understanding Xemnas in Kingdom Hearts 2, a highly recommendable read. You can also, of course, you can find it on withaterriblefate.com. Of course, you also find a direct link in our show notes. And while you are there, you can also click on the Patreon link that's right next to it right. and give us a tiny support because it's really important in such an early day of a show such as this one. See, just like Kingdom Hearts, it's all connected. 
if you like Kingdom Hearts, then you should really go to to Apple Podcasts and give us a good review. That will certainly help Sora in his quest. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and if you have any more questions, then please feel free to visit us on Facebook, on Twitter, or send them via email to podcast at withaterriblefate.com. And we'll see each other next week then. 